Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Today, Brett and I talked to Nick Elders, fintech provocateur, president, and co-founder of Spark from Ignify Technologies. Spark is a social mission-driven company whose cloud-based origination platform helped originate $9 billion in aggregate loan activity over 50,000 loans in the first two and a half months of PPP. This is not another story of small business lending platforms, however. It's about the power of purpose and the need for intentionality. Networks become powerful amplifiers of either good or propagating old stereotypes and systemic bias. Let's hear what Nick has to say. Nick, thanks for joining us today. And, you know, what I'd love to start is, you know, we're in an era of massive amplification, right? If COVID and the last four years have taught us anything. It's the power of within media for things to be amplified. But there's another effect within the banking and specifically, you know, the lending segment around amplification. And you have some really interesting views around that that I'd love to begin to explore there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, when we think about, you know, most people think about when they're building a, a, a technology, they they often think about their customers as just that, just that customers. We we really view the folks that join our platform as becoming part of a community, and we also think about them as becoming nodes on a network. Um, and that that really becomes powerful when you start to think about. Um, grabbing banks in North Carolina, grabbing banks in Texas, grabbing banks in California, grabbing banks in the Midwest. At the same time, uh, there's a tangential part of our business where we started, which is grabbing CDFIs in those same markets. And so when we start to think about network effect and amplification, that's where it gets really exciting. Because once you start to put a bank on a loan origination technology and a CDFI on that same loan origination technology. That historically hasn't ever existed in the, in the market. There hasn't been a provider who's come along to say, you know, hey, let's, let's, let's do both. <laughs> because historically it's been very challenging even to just get loan origination technology established in the bank sector. Um, and now we're getting it in both. So therefore we're well positioned now to connect these two industries, which have historically operated primarily on handshake basis. Well, now we can connect them systemically. Um, and that's where things start to get really exciting. Well, explain what Spark does, because it's, yeah. you've hinted at now, it's much more than a loan origination platform or a piece of software. This network effect and your approach to the market is you know, very different. Yeah, so we're, we're sort of disguised as a, a loan origination technology today. <laughs> um, you have to have a product that's useful. And so today... That's kind of how we're coming into the market. And that's kind of the first part, the first leg of our business is all about scale. Um, so scale for us is adding more and more nodes to our network. Um, so today our, our product, our product Spark, handles everything from an inquiry. So a customer that might be sort of a small business that might be on a bank or CDFI's website, providing a little bit of information to start the process. So that's typically where you see the FinTech companies, you know, getting that inquiry form initially started. 
from there, we move to a secure portal and application experience. So what that means essentially is historically, it's been very difficult for banks to engage with small business owners directly. They've been reluctant to do that. Um, we're providing a secure means in which a business owner can transact directly with the bank where they're providing their data, their documents, any sort of specialized information that's needed for that bank to make a decision. From there, we move into the actual underwriting and analysis that the bank has to perform. Historically, that's been handled by macros and Excel workbooks and all sorts of other things. We're doing that systemically in a loan origination solution so we can speed up decision-making. Inside of there are links to credit scoring algorithms, um, and other things that can help people make decisions faster. The good examples are like PayNet, LexisNexis, et cetera. Um, from there, then we move into you know where banks live today, which is forms creation. So <laughs> there's still a lot of forms being produced um, in the lending world, primarily things like notes, mortgages, deeds of trust, et cetera. Um, so all of that is contained within the solution. And then we also move actually go into a little bit into post-closing where loans are actually dispersing. Um, so in the cases of small credits, typically that's one disbursement, but in the case of larger, more secured credits where we operate, um, that's typically done over a construction period and a multi-draw period. So we handle all of that. And then we wrap that all around it with a huge open API. Um, I think the days of closed off systems are over. We're not so naive as to think that we're the only system in the bank. We have to talk to a lot of other systems. And so we kind of started with that as the, as the thesis for how we would move this technology forward. Um, I'm I'm interested, Nick, in the fact that you know for you know I've run SMEs for the last thirty years, and um, you know whenever you get into a lending decision, you're always asked for three years of your financial statements. When most banks already have all of that information, right? Because they've got your bank statements, um, and you know we've just started to see tie-ups between, for example, Starling and. Um, uh, a zero accounting in the UK and others. It always has made sense to me that you know if if you have the cash flow of the business, you should be able to predict their credit needs in advance, rather than this antiquated system we have today of asking for financial reports and sort of reviewing those. So um, you know where does sort of predictive fit into these models now? You know you talked about credit score and LexisNexis and so forth, but you know we're already starting to see the shift. In buy now, pay later in the consumer business. The real trick here is predictive cash flow for businesses and you know factoring and stuff like that. So um, you know, where are the models emerging instead in in respect to those types of opportunities for business? Absolutely, absolutely correct. So we're working right now with two providers. We're evaluating both simultaneously. One is Kodat, um, so they're over in the UK. Um, they're kind of moving into the US. Uh, another one is called Forward AI, and so. Both of those solutions take into effect the, the business information and they start to push out and do all of the analysis so instantaneously. So if you think about the potential for that type of a solution to come into play, think about it more from like, you know, think of the bank as like the hospital. The patient walks into the hospital when they have a broken arm. Um, rather than kind of, I think where you're, where you're describing, Brett, where the world is going, which is more preventative healthcare, um, where we think about that in terms of business owners the same way. So interpreting the data, making, making predictive decisions, and then helping banks push solutions out versus wait for them to come in. That's exactly where we're going. And so that's, that's where there's these solutions like Forward, Forward AI and Kodak, in combination with, you know, Plaid has done an amazing job of actually take, helping the banks understand the data that they have. So again, 
you know, using these these solutions, like the other strength that we add bring to the table is is helping helping banks turn the fintech ecosystem in their favor versus sort of fear being replaced by it. That that's another big thing that we really want to help everybody understand is like you you can you've answered the you answered the call during this <laughs> during this pandemic, but let's not let that opportunity slip by and go by. Um, let's let's leverage it and kind of push forward into this next generation now. There's a there's a there's a place where banks aren't quite ready yet to make those leaps, and that's where you have to help them by building trust, by helping them do the things they do today. So we're gonna we're doing that at the same time. That'll position us well to lead them to this next thing that's coming. I love the you need to crawl walk run in terms of helping the banks to evolve. Um, where do you think ultimately, like the you know. Do, let's get into the walk and maybe even the run what needs to change as we you know think about the lending ecosystem and how we engage both banks and fintechs and those we're lending to yeah so i think like i think one of the one of the the biggest barriers that we're up against right now is just straight up inertia so i think there's there's people that don't understand yet that they have a problem <laughs> And so sometimes you're you're help you're trying to convince them to understand that they have a problem and create the urgency with which they need to act. Um, so we see that a lot where, you know, in our world, um, when we walk into a bank or a CDFI and we're trying to say, hey, you know, there's a better way than Word, Excel, and a network share. Um, there's a lot of resistance to that initially. There, there's well, so because I think where people start to where people start to trip up is there, it's actually human beings working in these banks, and there, there's some control over the process that they can exert by these old antiquated solutions, and they think they're adding value. When really, it's you can outsource a lot of those lower level tasks to machines, let them win a few, while you focus on a higher level um, and more value added task, where you can start to build relationships, not necessarily be sitting there renaming loan files. Like that, that doesn't that doesn't really add any value to anyone in the transaction. Um, so I think like there's there's the the inertia that's that's one thing. I think the other thing that we have that we often run up against is if you think about it, it's banks in not I think I'd say CDFIs to a lesser degree. There's a lot of risk aversion in the in the sector because if you think about it, there isn't a lot of upside in in it for banks that are lending to small businesses. In some in some in, in almost every instance where they're extending credit, the, the return is capped. And it's capped at the interest rate that you put on that loan. And so, and all of that capital has to come back or, you know, you've lost the bank's capital. So I think there's, there's, there's not a lot of appetite for risk taking in the bank sector. Um, and obviously we see that in the historical data and a lot of the, where the, where the certain credit thresholds are set today. Well, and I would say not a lot of risk appetite in the bank sector, you know, both because they don't want to lose the capital and regulators tend to have a yeah. heavy emphasis on risk. So where do the regulators come uh, into play here? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you get, we were just down with the, the Texas Bankers Association and we were sitting in the, the CEO round table and it, in some ways you, you, you start, you have to develop a little bit of empathy for, for these folks and kind of what they have to deal with because, you know, it's like, well, why aren't why aren't you guys getting into blockchain and why aren't you getting into crypto and why aren't you figuring out how to like you know eat into Coinbase's margins and like offer be a custodian for you know and they're 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 still stuck back with like well 
you know, OCC came in and talked about this and FDIC came in and talked about that and SBA came in and talked about this. And so you, you think about all this regulatory environment that surrounds the banking sector. It, it's no it's no wonder that there's not a lot of risk appetite out there. Um, that being said, I think that there are trends and there are opportunities that, that banks have kind of watched to go by and the fintech sector has really jumped onto and glommed onto that we can, again, we can push a lot of these best practices out into the bank world. And that's where the amplification comes back is the stuff that is working. Like, let's get, let's get that going. Um, the fact that, you know, it was still, I mean, up to about probably a year and a half ago, the call to action on the Wells Fargo website was to call your banker and then to the branch. There was no ability to actually digitally engage. And, and whether, whether the banks understand that or not, Consumers are making a value judgment about you and your brand by the way in which you present yourself digitally. And that, I think, is not going to change. That's never going away. I mean, Airbnb, Apple, I mean, all these services that are built with these elegant experiences in mind, financial services, for somehow, some reason, some way, has, has lagged behind. Not all of them. But but a but a majority of the market has lagged behind that's those those types of experiences, and I don't really we don't really think that that's there's a good reason for that. So Nick, um, the the whole marketplace concept, particularly in an automated loan origination world, um, you know, when when we look at the formations of these new marketplaces, we've got a lot of new tools that we can use in respect to this. So you, you talked about APIs. Um, in China, um, loan origination markets now, there's a lot of work being done on the blockchain. Um, you know, where do you see the automation of this marketplace going over the next few years? And, you know, how well placed do you think the US, US is in respect to, say, the EU or Asia, where there seem to be a bit more aggressive on some of this stuff? I think it, there's a, so when I think of marketplace, I think of shopping. Um, I think you are, you're, you're shopping for a credit. You're, you're trying to figure out, you know, kind of what you qualify for, what's out there, what's available. Um, there's a lot of marketplace platforms out there. Um, we're really, you know, obviously well affiliated with Connect to Capital. Um, we're, we have a lot of friends over at Fundera, now part of NerdWallet. Um, so a lot of these, a lot of these solutions are in the market, and they're helping small business owners cut through the noise and, and get to a solution. I think there's going to be this balance and play of you know who's shopping and not a customer um, versus somebody who is a customer, and we do have the data. I think there's those are two different things. So you kind of get into the banked and the unbanked. Um, that being said, you know I think like how the U.S. is positioned. I think about open open banking. Um, in the UK and how the users own their data and are able to control it and take it wherever they want to and go. PSD2 and all of that. A absolutely. California is starting on that path. Um, and so that's that's a positive development because then we can start to use data in ways in which we haven't been able to historically use that in the bank sector today. I think listening to some of these, some of these folks in the banks, at, even at the highest levels, the CEOs, et cetera, talk about trying to understand the data that they have still. <laughs> 
Um, that's... Well, it's only recently that we've actually had legal precedents in place in the US that have established that customers own their data because mm-hmm. the big four's position previously was that they owned the data. The customers had no right to that. But thankfully, we now have some legal precedents in support of that. So that's a very, it's a very different legislative environment than, than the UK and the EU. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Let's get into this idea of like, you know, is the data is one of the issues, but those who, you know, reside outside of the banking system historically have had a very hard time breaking into it, data being one of those issues. How else are you helping solve that, Nick? And especially around those partnerships with CDFIs? Yeah, C- CDFIs are actually the, the the ticket to that solution in our mind. Did so, you just explain what CDFIs are? For yeah, if anyone's CDFI. Don't know. Yeah, acronym um, short for Community Development Financial Institution. There's you know, it's about over a thousand um, of CDFIs kind of located all throughout the country. Um, some that are very large, some that are very small, um, even down to the neighborhood level, and then also up to the national level. So it's it's quite a wide range of organizations. The the great part is that the capital that CDFIs have is, is, is a subsidy and it's meant to help unbanked and underbanked small business owners, affordable housing, et cetera. Um, folks that are not bank ready um, still should have access to affordable credit. I think the challenge has been CDFIs haven't necessarily been able to compete um, in a digital world getting their voice out, getting their, getting their reputations out, getting, getting the message out that they're here to help. It's the way we look at it, it should go, if a bank can serve a customer, great. If a bank can't serve a customer, a CDFI should. And just for the fact that the, the small business owner can't find them is not a good enough reason. That's why we're saying there's a better way. And that's to say, okay, bank can't serve, one of our banks can't serve, one of our CDFIs can, let's make that connection systemically through the technology. Now, again, I think we're, if we think about kind of where, where, they, where they do really well, and again, it's, it's a, this is a virtuous circle. It doesn't just end once the business owner takes out a CDFI credit. The CDFI can then attach advisory services to that business, help them grow. And then when they're ready to go back to the bank, that's success for the CDFI. So it, and then the small business owner is able to traverse up and down the credit, the credit cycle 
um, and credit products available from both banks and CDFIs as part of that solution. Yeah, because unfortunately, the if it isn't the virtuous cycle, what ends up happening is yeah. they end up with a payday lender, and that ends That's up it. being a non-virtuous cycle of being stuck treadmill. in a exactly the 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 credit treadmill. Because unfortunately, and, and, the payday. And, go ahead, Brett. No, no, ninety-nine percent of America's twenty-eight point seven million businesses are small businesses, and so. Mm-hmm. As we've seen during the pandemic, they're the lifeblood of employment. And when these small businesses have to close, when they're unfunded or underfunded, then it's a a massive risk um, from an employment perspective. But, you know, what we saw during the pandemic, if it wasn't for the PPP loans, the appetite for risk for lending to small businesses during the pandemic was basically zero. The same happened during the global financial crisis uh, back in 2008. So how is it we change that culture that that small businesses are seeing as risky? Because, you know, you've got startups getting plenty of VC funding and stuff like that if they can navigate those, those paths. But the traditional funding mechanisms through banks just seem to be getting harder and harder to get access to, right? Yeah. I, I think where, where the world is headed is, is a place where capital is is largely ubiquitous that it's going to be available everywhere for, i mean shoot i got a letter from comcast or ready for a small business loan like what do you why why are you throwing credit out <laughs> you're, you're a cable company but they they have a they believe they have a proprietary data stream that they can use to extend credit in very much a similar way to amazon and other well, just even t- seeing if you'd pay your, um, you know, your cable right. and your phone bill on yeah. time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so where we start to see like, you know, the big four, they've, they've largely become in some ways, you know, money stores that are driven primarily by credit. Markets. And, but we're also on the hunt for, and we come across them infrequently, but we want to see more frequency is uh, providers that are working on scoring the uns- under- unscorable working on trying to figure out how models can work for people that don't have a credit history. What other means of data or streams are available to make a decision about someone without having to you know, intimately know their whole history? That, and then again, back to amplification. If we get that, if we can get a hold of those partners, we can, we can activate those, those partnerships in our technology and then push those products out to our customers. Much in the same way that when PPP came along, you know, nobody knew how to do a PPP loan before the rules were written. But once we got a hold of the product, we, we were able to come to market on the first day with a product and it and it went really well for everybody that was on our technology. So that's the good example of that network effect actually happening. Well, now we're saying, okay, if it worked for PPP, why wouldn't it work for some of these other um, unique credit models that we can then Absolutely. amplify out through our network? There was a startup in Africa, Brett, you might remember the name. It's escaping me now that we had on that they were doing their underwriting based on what apps and data that came off of your phone. And what they found was uh, an interesting correlation with the presence of a gambling app. And it turns out if you had a gambling app, it went one of two ways. If you had a gambling app I remember this. and you always kept your phone charged above a certain level, you were actually a very good credit risk because it meant you understood kind of this risk return profile. And part of that is because um, 
the ability to charge your phone, you know, was spotty at best that you had a level of responsibility attached to it. And so presence of gambling app alone, bad presence of gambling app, plus you keep your phone charged. Good. You know, yeah. in those, I think you're are, always ready to take a gamble. If you charged up, man. <laughs> well, maybe that's what it's saying. I don't know. The same with, um, you know, we had uh, um, uh, Scott a Lending Club on not long ago, you know, and he was saying that, um, you know, whether people pay their phone bill on time was a better predictor of right. default risk than a credit score, you know. Um, right. So for, for Lending Club, to, you know, just that one data point, it's extraordinary. So the behavioural element of this, you, you talked a little bit about that, but where, um, and you talked about trying to build trust in these models, you know, it, it it seems like after a crisis like this with the pandemic, um, that if people's credit scores have taken a massive hit because their business has failed during the pandemic, that's no longer a reasonable assessment of their ability to run a business or manage a credit line because these were extraordinary uh, circumstances. And so how do you now um, you know, convince banks that the credit score in this environment is bad data and that there's better data available? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think where we've, where we've spent most of our time is helping our customers, specifically the banks um, and CDFIs, transition over to a lot of the government guaranteed products, the SBA products specifically. So whereas their, whereas their conventional lending was at a specific level above um, you know, pre pre COVID, um, we've seen those levels increase pretty dramatically. And there's reasons for that that are that are both you know economic, but also um, the more flexibility that you have in the SBA products to go to different credit scores. We haven't necessarily seen the SBA loosen up much of their credit criteria. Um, so SBA uses a scored model for loans below 350, and they haven't necessarily loosened up some of those thresholds. So there's still some screening that's getting done at the SBA level. Um, so I think it's, it's a, we don't really have the answer right now for, for how we're going to, to get banks over that hurdle um, and get folks back in. I think there's also, what we're hearing is, is there's also a demand issue um, on the part of the small business community um, for some of, the, some of the credit products that we were seeing in market, you know, sort of pre-pandemic, which were, you know, <laughs> I, I don't mean to dig bash, but like, Folks that are competing at the minutes, like, you know, I can fund a loan in two minutes versus three minutes versus five. I, I just, I don't know that that's a realistic, like, way to differentiate. Although in China, you know, that stuff has become a benchmark, you know, where, yeah. you know, players like, uh, you know, uh, Lufax, Alipay, you know, Tencent, WeChat Pay, with their, right. their loan and credit provisionings, they, you know, they have put real pressure on the banks because they can essentially do instantaneous mm -hmm. loans, but that's because of their data. It's absolutely it's, yeah. Well, it's infrastructure as well, but it's primarily the fact that they've got much better data models. So here's the question for you: You know, um, do you see your organization as a data platform for these alternative mechanisms? Because as you said before, the banks don't even have you know good access to their own data, let alone these additional data points that um, reflect you know behaviors and and risk in a different sure. way. Sure. Uh, answer short answer is not today. I think in the next probably 12 to 24 months, absolutely. I think we have a we have a ton of really good information on 
origination. We don't have that sort of trailing. How did this actually, how did this business actually perform without going to our customers and asking for it? Because our platform today kind of ends at final loan disbursement. It doesn't go through the life of the loan all the way out to, you know, kind of call it two, three, five, 10 years, but we're building that right now. But the idea that we can develop recursive self-improvement where through machine learning and other items, the, the, the models that we are, that are extending credit at the beginning can be informed by the performance of the loans that are going through the tail and feeding back into the front of that mechanism. So we, we are in, heading in that direction. We're just not there yet. Well, in that recursive approach, I think is one of the most necessary things is, you know, we round this out to look at how historically these data models and you know, specifically even some like the SBA have actually propagated a lot of, you know, systemic bias because Absolutely. You know, they don't uh, evolve. And I'm curious what you've learned in that approach as you actually have these models, you know, become evolutionary what have you seen that open up? Yeah, so when, when a good example, um, SBA, when they first launched their scoring products for the loans under 350, they set, the, they set their threshold, um, which they built their models off of um, FICO's uh, small business scoring service, so FICO liquid credit. Um, there's a, there was a specialized model built for SBA that set that threshold at 140, which they were, and, and so at that, that, so what that means essentially is that the SBA was buying, kind of call it, call it a 12% default rate, expected kind of about 12 to 14% of those loans that were extended under that program to, to default. That's what that model would predict. Um, so, that, so that was set at 140. Now, when they launched the Community Advantage program, which was specifically designed for CDFIs and others, they set that threshold at 120. Which was, you know, around a twenty percent default rate. So they were, and if you think about what the SBA actually is, is a, is a loan wholesaler. I mean, that's that's exactly what they are. <laughs> and so they were buying that credit risk through those models, and then using, you know, the banks and others that that access the SBA program to extend that debt that way. So now that the I think the the challenge with 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 liquid credit and some of these other models is that. Um, the predictability of those models and the data streams that go into them, um, that the quality of that is what makes the model great. And so if you're, we're starting to look at other providers, DMIST, PayNet, et cetera, that have alternative streams and combining it with, with, with FICO liquid credit. So you start to get a model of model of models. Now, I don't, <laughs> a big knock on all the FinTech companies and the credit scoring that was going on pre-pandemic was, you know, once these once these models hit a recession or a downturn, we're going to really see who's going to who's got the best credit models. So on on that, um, you know, we've only got a few minutes left, Nick. Yeah. But um, I want you to sort of put your futurist hat on here and think out maybe sure. five ten years. Um, you know, what we've got right now is very interesting situation. The deal with a firm and Amazon um, that was announced mm -hmm. last week um, that spells, in my view, that spells the end of the credit card business because as buy now pay later and more contextualization of credit comes into place, you just use your credit card less and less. You know, it's now credit is just built into the journey as an option for you. And so if, if we extend that into the world that you live in, you know, do you think that fintechs like Affirm and other, um, you know, players could come in and take some, some market share of traditional lenders over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, that the writing is on the wall there. 
and we, we talked a little bit about it in the in the middle of the conversation, but the the idea of the the ubiquity the ubiquity of money. And so what we think about is if it's a, if money is available everywhere and from a lot of different sources, and some of those sources are have more elegantly designed experiences that are more delightful for customers and easier to use than some of the more some of the harder ones and the and the cost of capital is the same. People really got to step back and say, how are we going to differentiate against that solution? And and so I think if we look at you know where is the world going, we have to start designing in the bank sector and the in the financing sector. We have to start designing experiences that mirror or match some of the other Silicon Valley based experiences that are out there in order to compete. If we want to compete, I think when that's another question I think that banks have is, are they willing to cede some of these markets to yeah. others and, and, and not even play? And I don't think that that's the right answer. I think if we, if, we, if we cede the small business community to venture capital and hedge funds and private equity, I, I think we all lose a little bit in that world. Most of those, most of those solutions are, are built to extract value from business owners and not necessarily grow with them, but grow from them. Right. And I don't think that we're really interested in that. Okay, so Nick, where can people find out more information about Spark and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I encourage everybody to head out to lendwithspark.com. Um, we've just recently gone through a new rebranding. Um, we're putting a lot more content out there. Um, and again, we, we're really all about helping, helping business owners access traditional credit um, through a lot of our different partners. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us on Breaking Banks this week and um, all the best with your continued endeavors. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.